Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. How many of you um, have seen or are familiar with before and after pictures? Show of hands. Uh, the vast majority in the room know what I'm talking about. The internet is absolutely full of them, especially for um, hair growth. Uh, maybe I need to pay attention to those ones. Uh, and for diet pills and abs workouts. You, you kind of see those kind of before and after pictures everywhere. In the before picture, uh, the guy, uh, no offence intended here, but usually looks about nine months pregnant. Uh, and then miraculously, the aftershot says six weeks later, and he's got like an eight-pack, somehow his teeth are also whiter, and he's got a tan. I'm not sure how that works. But it's meant to make us go, wow, what on earth could bring about such a change? Well, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, the passage that Ali's just read to us, gives the Christian their very own before and after picture. And we're meant to look at these verses or listen to these verses and say, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, what could possibly cause that kind of a transformation? And so what I want us to do in the time that remains is just take a closer look at what Paul says here, at the before picture and the after picture and see how they might apply to us. Let's start with the before picture, verses 1 to 3. Once you were, so this is in the past for those uh, who have believed in Jesus, this is the before picture, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. There are three key traits that Paul is highlighting or drawing out in this before picture. First of all, the natural state of humanity is spiritually dead. Not just spiritually sleepy or spiritually weak or spiritually ill, not merely resting, spiritually dead, completely and utterly cut off from the life of God. Which, if you think about it, has pretty big implications for what we need in order to be saved. I mean, if we're merely sick, we simply need a regime of medicine or treatments. Or if we're weak, we just need a bit of a shot in the arm. Or if we're lazy, we merely need a motivational pep talk, perhaps once a week on a Sunday morning. But if we're dead, what do we need? Any ideas? New life, resurrection, nothing short of resurrection. That's what we need. So Paul says the human race is spiritually dead. Now, in lots of ways, it might not actually feel like that to us. 
We may look at that or listen to that and say, no, 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 we feel very much alive. We might have a thriving career, a blossoming family life, pretty vibrant imagination. We might be healthy and wealthy and strong. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to knowing God and being in close fellowship with our maker, Paul says we are dead or we were dead to God, cut off in the dark, not weak, not sick, not lazy, not just a bit off, completely and utterly dead. Secondly, not only were we spiritually dead, we were also spiritually dominated. According to verse 2, before we were in Christ, we were like helpless sheep following after the ways of the world and obeying the devil, who Paul explains is the commander of the powers of the unseen world. Now once again, we probably wouldn't have said that we felt like we were particularly being dominated. Probably we would have spoken more in terms with verse 3. We were just following the passionate desires of our sinful nature. It's like whenever our sinful nature gets hungry, we feed it with whatever junk food sins are readily available at the time. And that's just our natural state. We get hungry, we eat. We have an itch, we scratch it. Our sinful nature wants to be gratified, and we sin away. But verse 2 reveals that something way more sinister is going on beneath the surface here. Where verse 3 tells us we just do what we want to do, verse 2 takes this a step further and tells us that was actually a form of slavery. Listen, life before salvation is a really insidious kind of domination. Because it doesn't feel like we're being dominated most of the time. It just feels like we're actually freely doing what we want to do. But the one thing we never want is Jesus and to do what he wants. Before we were saved, we wanted all kinds of different things. Sometimes we even wanted to be moral. We wanted to prove ourselves by living a good life. But we didn't want Jesus. We didn't want to submit to him. We just wanted what we wanted. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous have a saying. They say, an alcoholic is free in many ways. I mean, an alcoholic can choose beer or wine or spirits, but they can't choose not to drink. It's like... An addict makes all sorts of choices, but they can't choose to stop the addiction. Addiction goes much deeper than our ability to make free rational choices. You you can't simply choose your way out of an addiction. And you can't choose your way into Christ either. If you're in spiritual slavery to sin, the world, and the devil... You just don't have that freedom, which I suggest is deadly, deadly serious. Because if you even inadvertently follow the devil, you'll eventually follow the devil into hell because that's his 
ultimate destination. And so verse 3 ends by spelling out that life before salvation is hellbound. In other words, we're damned. According to Paul here, before salvation, we're objects of God's righteous anger. We were part of a, a whole system that God had said no to, a, a way of life that really has no future at all, a life that has a divine verdict pronounced on it, damned. Now look, I, I think perhaps the main thing we're being confronted with in these verses, underneath all of this, is the sheer dreadfulness of sin. And the fact that perhaps some of us are ever so slightly uncomfortable with the extremity of some of the language flying around here is maybe an indicator that we don't take sin quite as seriously as God does. Which, actually, is no great surprise because our culture is constantly watering down the awfulness of sin, isn't it? We prefer to use euphemisms for it. We speak of our mistakes or our background or the behavior of others. It's like we have all of these really carefully honed ways of understating the influence of the power of sin at work in our lives. And on the occasions when we do refer to sin, we tend to trivialize it to the realm of high-calorie foods or indulgent treats. Those are the real sins. What we don't tend to do is speak in the way that Paul does here in these verses. I was dead. I was so corrupted. I was so owned by this power that was greater than I was. I was so enslaved to the passions of my flesh that I was a corpse I, I, I was alive, but not really alive. I, I followed the world and the devil, and I was guilty to the very core. And here's the thing. Paul's not merely describing himself here. He's describing all of us. Whether or not we find it easy to speak in those kinds of terms, the truth is, because of our sin, we were dead dominated and damned. That is the before picture. What hope did we have? None. None whatsoever. At least not in ourselves. Really, our only hope was if God acted and did something to save us. And that's what Paul unpacks from verse 4. We were dead, dominated and damned, but, verse 4, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God's offer of salvation isn't a helping hand. It's not a bit of a leg up. It's not a shot in the arm. It's not this motivational pep talk. It's not an offer of assistance. It's not six steps to a happier, healthier you. It's resurrection. 
First off, it's being made alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Remember the story of Lazarus in John's Gospel? Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus comes to the tomb and says to his dead friend, Lazarus, come out. And John 11, verse 44, simply says, the dead man came out. Even while dead, Christ made him alive. And that is exactly what Paul says happened to each of us when we responded to the gospel. Just like Lazarus, verse 5 tells us, we were made alive with Christ even though we were dead because of our sins. Now think about it. How does a dead person hear Christ's word and respond? Well, I don't know about you, but I have no idea at all how Lazarus heard and responded to Jesus. All I know is there was no power in Lazarus to be able to hear. It's not like he was a really good listener in the tomb. It's not like he was one of those rare corpses that are particularly open to being resurrected. There was absolutely no credit that Lazarus could ever claim for this. The power for this miracle did not lie one bit in Lazarus. But there is resurrection power in the word of Christ. And somehow his word can cause the dead to hear and respond. And Paul says that is what has happened to us. We've been called out of the dead by Christ's word. But it's even better than that. We're not just like Lazarus, who was raised temporarily to a bit more earthly life before he then eventually died again. No, according to verse 6, we are now united with Christ. We've been made alive with Christ, and we are now united with Christ. Verse 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Here's how you and I are saved. God sent Christ into our dead, dominated, and damned predicament. He came to be with us, and he took us to himself in such a way that he was able to stand in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the damnation that was due to us. He paid the price personally to set us free once and for all from all the domination of sin, the world and the devil. And then we're told he rose up again to the Father's right hand in glory. Now, if we're united with Christ, then that means we are where Jesus is. And where's Jesus? Any ideas? He's everywhere all around us. He's 
Uh, someone's pointing up. Yeah, he's, he's, he's exalted to the highest place. He's uh, in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God the Father. Where we were damned, we are now seated with him, not just on these rather dodgy chairs in this dining room. We're sitting on those chairs, but also we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. Now, let's be honest. Just like it doesn't always feel like we were dead, it doesn't always feel like we are seated in the heavenly realms, does it? Or to put it in another way, if this is what the heavenly realms are like, then the prospect of eternity suddenly seems slightly less than inspiring. So what are we to make of this? Well, I think it's helpful to remember that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while seated in prison. But despite the very real pain and suffering and affliction he was experiencing, there was still something about the reality of his spiritual seating in the heavenly realms that deeply and profoundly impacted how he viewed his current physical seating. Let me give you an illustration. A number of years ago, I was on a flight with someone, and when we got to the airport, they discovered they had been unexpectedly upgraded to business class. Has that ever happened to anyone else? It's never happened to me. Has it happened to any of you? It's happened to Ed. <laughs> so Ed, Ed's the one to stick close to. It might happen to you as well. It didn't happen to me in this instance. My friend got upgraded. I didn't. Now, on one level, we were in the same airport. We were standing in the same queues. We were about to board the same plane but his destiny had changed. And although he wasn't yet seated, or should I say reclining in business class, his outlook was suddenly completely different to mine because he knew where he was heading. He knew that seat was his, and it totally transformed his perspective. And I think that's like what Paul's getting at here. We are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. Spiritually, that's where we are, even though our physical body is going to have to wait in line a little while until it finally sees the fulfillment of the promise. So in summary, you and I haven't just gone from death to life. If we believe in Jesus, we've gone from death to life to being seated in heaven with Jesus. Where Christ has gone, we have gone too. And the blessings that he is showered with, we also are showered with. We were dead, dominated, and damned. That was the before. Now we're alive, united with Christ, and seated with him in the heavenly realms. What a before and after. It's amazing, isn't it? What do we ever do to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. And that is the whole point. Verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. I mean, can you imagine Lazarus boasting on the day he was raised? 
going around telling everyone the secret of getting resurrected as though it was all his own doing. No, all he could do was point to Jesus and say it was him. It was all and only him. I mean, I was dead. And the next thing I knew, I was hearing his voice. And of course I responded. I mean, what else could I do? Suddenly, I was no longer dead. The moment I heard his voice, everything changed. And that's what it's like for us. There is nothing we can contribute to our salvation, which really is why a boasting Christian is a contradiction in terms. We're not top of the class. We're not more special or more worthy than anyone else. We were dead, dominated, damned corpses who have been brought out of the pit, brought to life and raised into the highest heaven to sit on the throne of the universe. What possible explanation could there be for that except God's sheer kindness, mercy and grace? Listen, your salvation is an absolute gift. If you turn to God and say, how much do I owe you for that? You have completely misunderstood Jesus. You've misunderstood salvation. You've misunderstood God's grace. There is nothing you could pay for. It is nothing you need to pay for. It's yours. If only you'd take it. Just like there's nothing Lazarus did to get resurrected, there's nothing you did to get saved. Your salvation has nothing to do with whether you've been good or bad, hardworking or lazy, religious or irreligious. It's nothing to do with the good things you have done or ever will do. Now, that being said, once you're saved, there is a place for doing good things. Paul says as much in verse 10. We are God's masterpiece. I love that. We are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. But there is a place for doing good works. That place is after you're saved. But it's not something we have to summon up as some kind of payback scheme. No, we've been recreated in Christ, like him, to do good things, to do the kind of things he did and he does. It's like those good things will just naturally flow out of us. If we're united with Christ, his life will just naturally flow through us. It just will. There are all kinds of good things we'll find ourselves naturally doing. But they play absolutely no part whatsoever in our standing before God. Let me say that again. Our performance, our moral performance, our good works, plays absolutely no part whatsoever in our standing before God. And the reason for all this is simply so that God can point to us in all future ages, as examples of his grace and his kindness. That's why he's done it. 
Maybe you're sitting there thinking, that's not a reason. You still want to turn into something that you've merited or you've earned. But he says, no. It's not because of anything you've done. It's simply because I want to pour the lavishness of my overwhelming loving kindness and grace all over you forever and ever. That's the reason why I've raised you to new life in my son. Now look, if you're like me, and you might not be like me, but if you are, you might not always think of God like that. I think more naturally we have this tendency, don't we, to default to a view of God being against us, or at least distant from us, or maybe in some way disapproving or disappointed with us. We perhaps think of mercy as being something we need to try and wring out of him, rather than something that so characterizes his heart that it flows out of him infinitely all of the time without us even having to do anything to warrant it. Listen, his incredibly lavish, unending, overflowing mercy, grace, kindness, and love are the sole reason you have gone from being dead, dominated, and damned to being alive, united with Christ, and seated with him in the heavenly realms. It is not because of your works. It's because of his rich mercy. And he's going to spend all eternity just showing you how phenomenally rich he really is. As I draw to a close, let me quickly apply this in four different ways. First of all, Maybe, as you've been sitting there listening, you've had this nagging feeling while I've been speaking that you've never personally experienced the salvation that Paul is talking about here. Perhaps you've been thinking, I don't feel particularly alive, and I certainly don't have any assurance that I'm seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. In fact, perhaps you're more acutely aware than before that you are still dead in your sins, but you do want to be alive. Maybe today, maybe other times you've been around here or in other contexts like this. Maybe you've been struck or are beginning to have your eyes open to the love of God. And you know what? You want to experience it for yourself. You can leave here today a new person. You can have your own after picture today love to chat with you love to pray with you at the end of the meeting if that's you secondly perhaps you're sitting there and you, you've been challenged by the need to learn to live out of the good of this regardless of your physical circumstances you want to learn to live as though you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms that you're unconditionally loved that you have nothing more to prove just think for a moment what would it look like to live as though you are a recipient of a never-ending fountain of mercy, grace, and love. What would that look like for you? You know, I think it grieves the heart of God when Christians 
just live like everyone else. Now, I'm not talking about morally, that, that's kind of obvious. I'm simply talking about our sense of identity. It's an absolute tragedy for a Christian to have a low view of God and a low view of themselves. Because when we do that, we then try and medicate our condition by constantly trying to win the approval and acceptance of others, and it never works. But we're not made for that anymore. We need to learn to marinate in these truths, take these truths into our spirit, learn to live every day in the good of these things. Thirdly, I think there's the important reminder here that we constantly need to keep in our minds, we are saved by grace. Because we live in a culture that is so incredibly critical, so full of hatred, so dismissive of people we disagree with. And so we can often feel defensive, can't we? Or misunderstood, or as though we're victims. As a result, we can then lash out by being harsh or unkind to others. But I think when we grasp that we are saved by grace, that we're no longer victims, no, we're recipients of unbelievable kindness that we never could have deserved, then surely that will filter through into our attitudes towards others. We'll believe the best about them. We won't be critical. We'll be kind. We'll be quick to forgive. We won't be judgmental. And here's the thing. When we meet people, when we bump into people, which we do all the time, who are broken, and when we shower them with unconditional love and grace, you know what? They will want what we have. Create opportunities for us to share Jesus with them in a very natural way. And then fourthly, I think we need to find our security in relationship with God. You know, we live in a time where people are constantly trying to invent themselves and figure out why they were born. In my experience, the people who are trying to discover themselves often end up exhausted. There's rarely any sense of peace and rest. That there's always the next thing. That this next thing is going to be the thing. There's not a whole lot of stability, just fragile identity. Listen, there is something way better than inventing yourself. You know what it is? Realizing you are God's masterpiece. He created you. He designed you the way you are. You are not an accident. He defines you. And your ultimate purpose is found in relationship with him. You were made like you are, where you are, who you are, because God has something for you. And really my prayer is that you would find that in relationship with Jesus today and tomorrow in the weeks, months and years to come.